Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode number 10, A Garden in Eden. And I'm really excited about this episode. I've been thinking a lot about what I'm going to put in this episode, and I promise to keep it right around 30 minutes. Um, But there are just so many themes that start right here in a perfect place that God has orchestrated in such a perfect way to put the first man and then the first woman into this garden, into this special place with him. And what I'd like to do in this particular podcast is simply look at Genesis 2, 8 through 14, which gives us just a little description of this garden that the Lord plants in Eden and what we learn about him, what we learn about ourselves, and what we learn about the way that he has set up the world. So I'm just really excited. I'm glad you're sticking with me here. We've made it all the way to the 10th episode, and let's just dive right into it. Here we go. What I'd like to do right at the beginning of this episode is just go ahead and read for you the passage itself from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8, all the way through verse 14. And so I'll just read it first, and then if you're listening in and don't have a Bible, then at least you'll know the, the passages that I'm, I'm going to be referring to for the next few minutes. Here's what it says in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now that's um, just the way Genesis 2 chooses to describe a garden in Eden, and and it's important just for us to consider that there is simply a place, um, a place called Eden, and from there God chooses to plant a small garden, and He does so so that He can take this man that He just formed, and He gives him a place. Um, we had talked about this again, and I'll keep referring to this: these unformed and uninhabited parts of the creation. The Lord God forms the man; He forms a garden, and then he puts the man in it. And that's that's um, what he will continue to talk about, even in the passage that immediately follows the one we just looked at. But just a few observations that I'd like to make as we jump into this garden and what it is, how it's described, what it, what it actually means. But we're told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And just automatically we see that he then, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so the very first description we actually get of this garden where this man is, 
is that there are all these trees surrounding him, those that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, these phrases, pleasant to the sight and good for food, are super important, and they describe, number one, the fact that God has chosen to make a place that man has everything that he needs in order to survive. Um, That may sound simple and basic, but I think it's important because to have have something that is there that is good for food is something that means this place has been prepared for man and it was already made for him so that he's able to thrive in this environment. And so man has the Lord God with him there. He has food that is there for him. He has all that he needs in order to function as a living creature. But we're also told that every tree in the garden is pleasant to the sight. And this is something that I think often gets overlooked. Um, But what we're actually told in Genesis 2 is that the Lord God puts trees in the garden that are beautiful, that are pleasant to look at, that are aesthetically stunning. And they capture a very real part of what it means for us to appreciate the beautiful creation as it actually exists. And artists and songwriters and photographers who capture beauty in the world are actually hearkening back and screaming back to this exact scene. Beauty is valuable in and of itself. It doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't have to perform in a certain way. The Lord God is interested in beauty and beauty is something that is part of a good, perfect creation. Now, in Genesis 3, we will actually come back to these two phrases, things that are pleasant to the sight and things that are good for food. But for now, since we are simply living in a perfect time and in a perfect place, this is all that I actually wanted to talk about. The very next verse, I'm sorry, continuing in that same verse, it tells us something about two of the trees. And it says that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, all we know is that there are a whole lot of trees. They are pleasant to the sight and they're good for food. But in the middle of these gardens, in the middle of all these trees in the garden are two trees. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we're not told anything else about these trees right here. We will be told something later as we get to the the passage that continues to follow. But we'll look at this on another podcast episode. But a few things I do want to point out about these trees. The tree of life, um, we have heard the word life referenced a couple of times. Um, Mankind receives the breath of life from the Lord God himself, and he becomes a living creature, a living soul, as we looked at in episode 9. So this idea of living and this idea of life is something that is good and it's inherent in the the actual creation. Now, the Bible itself doesn't actually reference the tree of life a whole lot. And there's some speculation about, does this mean if Adam had eaten from the tree of life that he would have lived forever? And we really aren't sure. We're not told much about it. The tree of life does show up a few times in the Psalms, especially when we're given in Psalm 1, uh, the man who receives the words of the Lord and meditates on them day and night is like a tree planted by a river 
who constantly receives its life from God himself. And so Jesus will pick up on themes of trees bearing fruit, and you will know them by their fruits. And so the image of a tree and the fruit that it bears and the life that it gives by the fruit that it bears is a metaphorical theme that runs from beginning to end in the Bible. And so I tend to read this a little bit more with that in mind as opposed to an actual tree. Although in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, we are referenced a a tree whose leaves provide healing to the nations, which is such a beautiful image. It's such a powerful picture. C.S. Lewis picks up on this in one of the Narnia books. Um, where life is in fact given by taking from the tree of life. And so it's, it's just a powerful, powerful picture. But in the book of Genesis, the tree that gets a lot more attention, it gets a lot of attention in chapter three, but it will continue to get attention throughout the remainder of the Bible. And it's the other tree that's in the midst of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we could really ask ourselves, and hopefully you are as you're reading along in Genesis, but you would ask, what in the world does that mean? I mean, what is good? What is evil? And what does it mean to have the knowledge of good and evil? Um, Those are great questions. And so far, good and evil, as far as concepts, have not been fully explored yet to this point in the narrative. And I know you've heard me say that a lot, but I think it's important because the Bible, the narrative that the the Bible is telling will simply build as it goes on what comes before. And since we only have a chapter and a half of the Bible, we don't have a lot. And yet the word good has shown up already in the narrative, not just a couple of times, but actually seven times. Um, That's not... um, out of place. That's actually quite intentional. And um, <laughs> numbers in the Bible mean a lot, uh, particularly the number seven. But in chapter one alone, we read seven different times the words, and God saw that it was good. And so there's a little bit of a clue already for the reader to know good and evil or have the knowledge of good and and evil, we do have a little bit of an idea of what good is. And so far, all we know is that there are certain things that God says. Those things happen. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God separates the light from the darkness, the darkness he calls night, the the light he calls day, and God saw that it was good. And so there's a statement that God makes. There's something that happens as a result of his spoken words. And then there's an assessment given by God when he looks at what he has made and he labels that thing good. We got all the way to the end of chapter one. We see God resting in the opening verses of chapter two. And what I shared with you in episode seven was the fact that God simply sits back and looks at his creation as it is functioning exactly as he intended. Everything is in its rightful place. Everything is working exactly as it should. This is the beginning way you and I come to understand the very idea of good. What is good? What is true? What is right? 
Now, evil, this is the first time we've been introduced to this word, and many people in their own minds have views of evil. Evil, probably to this point in human history, is the number one reason why people who do not believe in the existence of God or do not believe in the goodness of God is because of things that are evil. Evil, wickedness, ruthlessness, cruelty, oppression, violence, these kinds of things, we see them most often from one human to the next. Um, People watch um, ugly murders and rape and slaughter and oppression and ridicule and cruelty and harshness, and the list can go on. And there are many, many times where people struggle with the goodness of God or with a God who really cares about his world because of this idea of evil. And so what I find really, really helpful is to recognize that we are introduced to this idea right in the center of the creation narrative and right in the center of the very place that God made perfectly to put the first man and the first woman. And so even from the Bible's perspective, this idea of evil takes center stage right along with this concept of life and with the concept of goodness. And how you and I try to parse out the relationship between goodness and evil is right in the heart of the biblical story. In fact, it's so much at the heart of the biblical story that to even try to define evil is something that's eluded a lot of people. I mean, evil, to be honest, is simply the distortion of good. It's it's the lack of good, the absence of good, or it's good twisted in on itself. No, evil does not exist. It can't exist in its own right. It's totally dependent upon good for its existence. You and I don't know what evil is unless we're comparing it to something good that is simply lacking in in that situation. So evil, generally speaking, is is a deprivation or a negation or a corruption of good in some way. So, you know, take, take a, a window pane. It's a, you know, you through a window, you can look into the outside world and you can see the beauty of, of the creation. Well, if somebody throws a rock or a Frisbee or a baseball and it cr- puts a crack in your window, that window is no longer good. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And you're on the phone calling a window repair company to come and replace the window pane because it's no longer good. Well, why is it no longer good? Well, it's no longer good because it has a crack in it, right? But what is that crack? You know, that that crack in the window actually is nothing. It It's nothing. Nothing was added to that window. Nothing even was taken away. It's simply a crack that was once, that, that basically has harmed a once perfectly flat window pane. Y- you could look at something which could very accurately be described as evil, and that is the spread and the destructive force of cancer. Well, doctors have been studying cancer for years and years, and we don't have a cure for it at this point, although there are medicines and procedures and things that can be done to slow its effects and sometimes to put them into states where it is no longer destroying the body, But cancer, as it actually exists, isn't really anything either. 
it's a distortion or a corruption or a disordering of the cells in your DNA that get jumbled in such a way that they no longer work for you. They no longer benefit life within your body. They start to fight against one another and turn on you. Now, those are just two small examples. And and if I was more insightful, I would spend a lot more time talking about the intense struggles that people face in this world because of actual evil. This podcast isn't intended to answer everyone's objections and I don't mean to minimize this or gloss over real suffering and real evil in the world but I I will agree with C.S. Lewis who recognizes that only when one sees something about good can they ever have any classification for things that they are now perceiving are not good or evil evil is goodness turned in on itself It's twisted in on itself. This will be a perfectly good definition of human sin from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of time. This evil or good twisted in on itself is something that's no longer looking outward, benefiting something outside of yourself. In fact, all of the creation to this point has God creating and then calling it good, not because it benefits God to create these things, but rather as an outward expression of his kindness and longing to create a world that he can love. That's why the creation exists. We'll see through some of the Psalms that God is not a God like the, like the gods of the other nations who need sacrifice and who need slaves to do his bidding. That's not why God created man. That's not why God created the world. He created it out of an expression of his care and his love so that it could overflow and that he could share with a creation and particularly with mankind in the creation part of himself so that it would always evolve into an outward expression of his love and his care for the world. And so in the middle of a garden, where every tree is pleasant to the sight and good for food, there are two trees. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the center of the garden. And then we come to this final section here, verses 10 through 14, which describe these four rivers um, that flow out of Eden to water the garden. And then from there, they split into these four rivers. Now, if you're reading this in Genesis and you think, man, this is not a daily inspirational verse. I don't have any idea what this means. How does this apply to me? What is gold and delium and onyx stone? And what are all of these things talking about? Well, first of all, is this a geography lesson? Am I supposed to try to find Eden somewhere on a map? And the answer to that question is no. If you try to do this, and if you try to rearrange things geographically, you're going to find yourself caught in a lot of trouble because what Genesis 2 is doing is not giving you a geography lesson. What Genesis 2, 10 to 14 are actually doing is, I think, helping you, helping me, helping us all by raising a couple of questions, and it is this. If the garden in Eden is a place where God dwells with his people, 
And in Genesis 3, we will find out that it says the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he called to Adam. So we, we know that the garden is a place where God dwells with man. But in Genesis 1, we are told that mankind is supposed to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. And if you're reading along in the narrative, it could cross your mind as it has mine and maybe it has others i'm not sure but the very the very real question being do adam and eve need to leave the garden in order to fill the earth and subdue it you know they're in the garden right now they're in this perfectly habitable place where food is provided for them beauty surrounds them the essence of good and and evil and the choices that are before mankind that that's all present in the garden the presence of god is present in the garden but do adam and eve need to leave the garden and therefore leave the presence of god in order to fill the earth and subdue it i think that's a legitimate question and i think verses 10 through 14 of genesis 2 answer that question with a resounding no. And here's why I think that. What we are told is that these four rivers flow out of Eden and they water the whole land of Havilah in verse 12 where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And you think, why are we given all these descriptions? Well, it's interesting, but gold, as you will well know, even today is a a form of currency, but gold is also something that, that you can overlay um, on things and cause them to be beautiful, cause them to glisten. The, the temple itself will have many of its components overlaid with gold. It's a sign of riches and wealth and blessing, but it's also something that is done to make things beautiful. Beauty, right? Pleasant to the sight. Yes, things that are surrounded in gold are pleasant to the sight, but delium is some is a it is a is a material used in making perfume or as incense or essential oils and was often used in traditional medicine so when you are seeking to fill the earth and subdue it and you have access to things like perfumes and incense which will be later used in the temple worship but essential oils in modern medicine or traditional medicine rather that's incredibly important for a people to expand and to grow and then onyx stone well, we know in, in Egypt, as early as the second dynasty, onyx stone was used to make bowls and other pottery items. And so you have these things in place right now where these rivers are flowing, where you can receive daily utensils, you can receive access to medicine, you have access to currency and ways of trading with one another. Civilization can actually expand as you simply follow the flow of these rivers but notice the rivers are flowing, four of them, in four very different directions, north, south, east, and west. And if you also notice that rivers flow downhill, that's always the way rivers flow. And so the fact that these four rivers are flowing to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west, and they are coming from a garden where Adam, and, where Adam is living with God, means that the garden is meant to be expanded. The presence of God with man is simply meant to grow and expand from Eden to cover the face of the whole earth. And the water source for that garden to expand is already in place. If you notice in verse 13, it says, this is the river that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Well, Cush 
is another name for Egypt. Cush is a place where Egypt or where Israel will be in Egypt next to the Nile, where all of their life came from. And so one of the plagues in the book of Exodus is turning the Nile to blood. And the reason that's the case is because when death comes to Egypt's life source, that's a major problem, right? Because you can't expand anymore if you have no life source, if you have no water source. And so here in Genesis 2, 10 to 14, the idea inherent in this good garden, in this perfect place with God and man, is the fact that God dwells here, that these rivers are flowing outward so that man can simply spread the presence of God in the garden with him in the perfect creation all the way to the ends of the earth. And like I said, when when rivers flow downhill, that's simply because the garden is actually on top of a mountain. It's an elevated plot of land in some sense where God dwells. This is really, really important for you and I to understand because immediately after being rescued from Egypt, in, in Exodus chapter 15 in what is called the Song of Moses, We read this about the Lord. You will bring them, your people, the ones you've just saved. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode and sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. We're told that the Lord wants to bring his people to his own mountain, the place which he has made for his abode, for his sanctuary, the place where he lives. In fact, all through scripture, particularly in the Psalms, the, the, the mountain of God, the city of God, the place where God dwells is always spoken about as a mountain. And in Psalm 48, it says this in verse 1 and 3, 1, 2 and 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And then on down to verse 12, it says this, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Moses will later receive instruction from the top of a mountain, and Israel will be instructed to erect its temple on the top of a mountain. Jerusalem is, in fact, a holy mountain, and it is because right here in Eden, rivers flowing, extending across the face of the earth from the top of a mountain where God is, will always be what redemption is aimed at restoring us back to is a place where we live and dwell with God on his mountain, with him, in close proximity to him, with him, and for him, always intending to extend that place of residence to the, furthest most, to the, to the farthest corners of the earth. That's the image 
we'll, we'll get to how that happens and what gets in the way and all of that. But the reason why it's so important to start with Genesis 1 and 2 is because we need to see the ideal. We need to see the perfect patterns. We need to see exactly who God is, what he desires for his world, how he has set it up exactly the way he intended, thus labeling it all very good and what our role is in it. And in the episode we're going to look at next week, we're going to talk just about what that role is. We've already seen that mankind is given the, the role of ruling and having dominion over the creation, but there is a specific way that that is intended to be done. And starting in verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God explains exactly what that is. But for now, all we know is that this beautiful mountain, this holy abode and sanctuary of the Lord God is the place where he has put the man that he had formed, placing him in a position to rule as God would, giving him trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food, capturing beauty, capturing um, provisions, And it is not coincidental that every single time Israel is wandering in the wilderness or every single time, or well, the time when Jonah is out on the side of a a hill, what the people are in need of, what Jonah is desperately in need of are trees that provide shade and rivers or streams or water that provides refreshment. Trees and water are always two things that people long for when they are in hot, dry, arid, desert, barren wastelands. And these kinds of themes will surface time and time and time again. Go reread Psalm 1, which does compare the man who reads and stays close to the word of the Lord as a tree planted by streams of water. Interesting. Sounds an awful lot like a garden. And then compare him with the man who does not walk in the counsel of the Lord in the second half of the psalm. He is like chaff, dry, can be blown away by the wind, has no roots, has no stability. That's a picture. That's an image that starts here. And we'll always look back to Eden, to this garden, to most fully capture what has gone wrong in the world and what ultimately Jesus has come to make right once again. So I'm so thankful that you are still listening in on the podcast. Please feel free to share this with others you think might be encouraged by it. Um, I would love for you to leave a comment at the end of one of the podcast apps that you're choosing to listen in on this, as that'll help spread the word to others who haven't yet heard about it. But as for now, that's all. See you next time.